You're listening to the Euro 92 Throwback Series on the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to SFF Podcast with me, John Bleasdale. 30 years ago this summer, Scotland took part in the first ever European Championships at the 1992 Finals in Sweden. To commemorate this, we take a look back at the Euro 92 Finals with a representative from each of the eight teams who took part in the tournament. In part two, our focus turns to two sides who somewhat underachieved at Euro 92. Journalist for the Keep. Pierre-Etienne Menonzio gives his view on why pre-tournament favourites France failed to reach the semi-finals, whilst Russian football expert Arta Petrosian digests into how the CIS finished bottom of their group despite drawing with both the world and European champions in their group. So sit back and enjoy our take on the underachievers of Euro 92. My mind's down and it's You don't know where to go in this part of our Euro 92 throwback, we look at the fortunes of one of the pre-tournament favourites, France. And I'm delighted to be joined by journalist for popular French paper, L'Equipe, Pierre-Etienne Menonzio. Pierre, welcome along. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I know. Thank you for coming on. First of all, I apologise in advance for... Um, my French accent is about as good as um, Del Boy Trotter in uh, the UK. <laughs> don't know if you're aware of it, that right. character from Only Fools and Horses or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, as well, I do apologize for the people who will listen to that. And I hope my uh, French accent uh, will be understandable. I think your French accent will be more um, understandable than my Scottish one, to be fair. So I think <laughs> we'll, we'll be okay. <laughs> so, yeah, as um, we've discussed, um, we're doing a throwback on uh, Euro 92 because this year will be 30 years um, since the tournament and France, as we mentioned, were one of the favourites. But um, before um, the qualification campaign, the French national team was not in a great position um, because they'd missed out on Euro 88 when they were the holders and they missed out um, in Italian 90, ironically, to Scotland. Um, and they were actually third <laughs> seeds um, for the Euro 92 qualifying. I mean... Do you recall, I mean, you would have been the same age as me when this was all happening. So what's your recollections of what position the French team were in at that point? Yeah, at the very beginning of the 90s, it was a kind of a nightmare, you know, because obviously um, France has a wonderful team during during the 80s, you know, as the Platini generation. But uh, in the end of the day, they, all these great players like Platini, Gires, Tigana, they left the national team around uh, 86, 87. And suddenly we realized that uh, all these great players that were so gifted, that were so uh, technically uh, uh, brilliant, we realized that uh, the next generation was not as, uh, as uh, gifted. And uh, so th- there was a transition around the late 80s, uh, early n- uh, 90s that was awful for the French national team. 
but uh, in the end of the day, Platini became the you know the the gaffer of the selection. It, it begins to to go again. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, you know, start to go again. I mean, um, it wasn't an easy group that um, France were in. I mean, because Spain were the top seeds in the group, and Spain were obviously um, still a top nation. Um, Czechoslovakia, as they were at that point, they were in the quarterfinals of the World Cup, um, and they were the second seeds. So it wasn't easy. And yet, France came through with the perfect record: eight wins out of eight, winning home and away against every team, including Spain. I mean, just summarise you know how good that campaign was and how much the team was progressing, especially with um, Jean-Pierre Papin up front, who'd scored nine goals. Yeah, but actually, that was uh, the, our first mistake, a general mistake in France, that after the qualification, eight victory in eight games, we thought uh, we were the best team in the world. <laughs> and, you know, at this very time, I was 11 in 1992. And, you know, as a kid, you, I mean, you, you don't realize anything. So <laughs> when you you see your team winning, you, you, you're sure that this is the best team in the world. But actually, if you think about the group, you know, there was Albania as well, which was not a good team as well. Czechoslovakia, as you said, was good, but not that good at this very time, you know, after the... The, the, the fall down of the wall, uh, I mean, after the, you know, Czechoslovakia was not a, um, a united country anymore. So not really. So there was a lot of problem in this country and it begins to affect the national team. And concerning Spain, actually, Spain, they were preparing, uh, you know, the Olympic Games of 92. So, so the whole obsession of Spain at this very time was not a European championship. It was uh, to win. Uh, the Olympic game, they, they will do actually uh, with uh, Guardiola, especially. Uh, they were that was their aim. So, but we didn't realize that. So we thought we have a wonderful team, but we didn't realize that the opponent actually were not that good. Maybe not, but it still takes a, a good side to win eight qualifying games out of eight. To be yeah. fair, and uh, you know the. Um, the Marseille team at that point was um, a top side because in 91 they reached the European Cup final which they lost in penalties and eight of those uh, Marseille players were in the French squad um, and then obviously a year later um, after year 92 they went and won the Champions League as it, um, it then became so you know they um, you know, having a, a good top club side and being able to call upon, you know, the likes of um, Frank Sozzi, who's well known in Scottish football from his time at Hibs, um, Basil Bowley, who has an unfortunate spell at Rangers, Diddy Deschamps, who was really emerging as a top talent. So, you know, it wasn't a bad um, pool of players to pull from, was it? Yeah, definitely. But it was actually another problem as well because uh, the, you know, Marseille was huge at these very times, but it begins to have an economical problem as well. And when the European Championship began in 1992, um, one of the first press conference was Basil Boli, and he explained that uh, he didn't have the money, the deserve, and there was a problem um, because Bernard Tapie has promised to, to give more money if they were champion, and he didn't give it. So actually, there were problems at Marseille that have been slid to the national team. And the other problem was the fact that at this very time, there was the beginning of what we call the French Classico, which is a bit ridiculous, uh, I know, but it's the opposition between Marseille and Paris Saint-Germain. And at this very time, it begins to appear that there was tension in the national team, and it will be a main problem in the early 90s, uh, opposition between the players from Marseille who began to hate the one from Paris Saint-Germain. 
So actually, it was not that good, this influence of a player from Marseille in the end of the day. See, this is why we bring you on, you know, because obviously back home in Scotland, we are not as aware of um, some of the problems that you're talking about. I mean, we knew that <laughs> Marseille the following year, after the year 92, and after the, the Champions League, when problems really began to unravel about some of the scandal that they were involved in. But at mm. the time of year 92, we weren't quite as aware of some of the political um, problems. Um, and with regards to the draw that France had, you know, when you compare what Scotland had, Scotland had the European and World Champions in their group and the runners-up from that same competition. France, mm. when you look at it... Um, they got the host Sweden, um, who didn't perform well um Italian 90. They got an England side who were in transition, and they got Yugoslavia, who had some good players at that point. But th- was there a possibility that maybe the French um, underestimated the group that they were about to come in? In fact, Yugoslavia, of course, went out, and Denmark came in. So, uh, again, that maybe thinks from a French mentality, correct me if I'm wrong, that an easier team's potential came in. This should be a walkover for France to get through the group. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You said everything. Yeah, there, there was a, a kind of uh, over um, overestimating themselves. Definitely, they, they thought it will be easy, and um, so actually, there we there were a lot of little problem, little other problem as well. For example, you know that uh, um, the best player was obviously uh, Jean-Pierre Papin, as you said. So Jean-Pierre Papin won the Ballon d'Or in ninety. 91 and, and I will say from a French perspective which is not objective at all I will say that he was at this very time the best player in the world and uh, to the people who listen to us uh, who doubt about it and I do respect them for that <laughs> I will say that they have to watch the video of a goal he scored uh, in a game France-Belgium it's in March 1992 so it's just before the European Championship and he scored the most beautiful goal I ever seen. So again, I was 11, so, <laughs> but it was wonderful. It's a sort of a volley, but it's impossible to score. It's, it's, he scored a wonderful goal. So at this very time, he was the best player, but he was injured at the European Championship. And the other best player was obviously Cantona. But Cantona, you know, he was in a very uh, particular situation because he, he has signed in Mars in Leeds. So you can, uh, and he was champion with Leeds and he was about to go to obviously Manchester United. But at this very time, he was totally out of form because during the season 91-92, he didn't play at all. You know, he, he just played almost un- just with Leeds. I exaggerate a bit, but uh-huh. he, he didn't, he was not fit at all. So we realized that our two best player was not uh, in form. And the other problem was that... Um, uh, Platini changed the, 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 the tactics uh, during the, just before the European Championship. During the qualification, it was 4-4-2. Mm-hmm. And he, he decided to change because uh, he, he, he didn't want to take any risks. Any risk, and he, he changed into 3-5-2, uh, like Marseille, actually. And he, he took the defense of Marseille. He was like, okay. I do uh, the easy solution. I, I do like the, the best French team. I do like Marseille. So three, five, two. But in this uh, in this organization, the, the, the team didn't perform. So actually, we didn't notice it at the time. But there were a lot of detail before the European Championships that shows that <laughs> things were going wrong. Actually. Yeah, you mentioned Cantona. I mean, um, he's obviously an icon in English football for what he did. I mean, he 
um, helped Leeds win the championship, as you mentioned, then goes to Manchester United. And every year, bar the, um, the period he was suspended for kicking the fan, you know, he was a title winner at Manchester United and then obviously um, retired mm. all of a sudden. But I always got the impression that the French national team it was, didn't quite click um, the same way. Was it, um, was it just because, you know, like, in England, he had Alice Ferguson, Sir Alice Ferguson, sorry, putting an arm around on him and just letting him away with things, but he didn't have that same bond with the likes of Platini, for example. Okay, I will tell a very unpopular op- opinion right now, and I do apologize for that, but actually, for me, it's true, exactly true what you said, but I won't say this reason. I say it's true, but the main reason of that is the fact that actually, for me, the early Premier League was not a, a good championship level. Actually, The level was not that good, which means that a good French player act at this very time, it was not the case after, but it was the case with Ginola, for example. If there was a good French player, he began to be extraordinary. He appeared like a genius, but actually, Cantona, for me, was not... It was a, a wonderful player, but... He, It's nothing to compare with Platini, for example. He's not a genius. And he appeared like a genius because at this very time, to be fair, according to me, the Premier League was not that great. And what what shows that was the fact that in Europe, at this very time, uh, Manchester United was not not so good with uh, Cantona. You know, I remember they lost against Dortmund. I mean, they were a dominant team in Great Britain because the level was not that high. But in what we call the international level, it was not that dominant. And Cantona, it was the same with the national team. He was good uh, at uh, English level at the time. Okay, And the national team, it's maybe higher. And he was not that good because in all the games he did with French national team, he, he, he never performed as he did as uh, Manchester United. So maybe it's a case of management, but I think it's a case of level of a championship as well. I think you make a good point, Pierre, when you consider that, uh, you know, especially the Platini um, uh, comparison, because Michel Platini in his day was one of the best players in the world. No, in the 80s, you know, he obviously um, led France to win in the 84 um European Championship, then helps Juventus win the uh, European Cup the following year. Um, you know, the man was um, a genius as a player. Um, whereas Cantona, as you make a good point, at Champions League level um, for Manchester United, probably didn't perform the same as he did in the Premier League. In terms of Platini as a coach, though, I mean, he was obviously quite a young coach. Um, was his naivety, did his naivety show um, through during those Euros, in your opinion? Yeah, it's hard to say he was at this very time a god in France. You know, you can't imagine how much he was loved in France because he was the guy who saved us, who saved the country every time. You know, the story of European national team between 1976 and 1987, it's a team that wins thanks to Platini. So he was a true hero. And when he... he I mean, when he, he, he decided, people decided for him that he could be uh, the gaffer of the French national team. Uh, even if he had no experience at all, it was clear for all the French fans that it was a genius idea because we loved, all loved him. But as you said, he didn't have the experience. It was very clear during the, 
the the European Championship, and uh, for example, there were problems of uh, in defense. He, he didn't like the way Casoni defend. He told him, and Casoni said, hey, "Listen, I play for Marseille. I know what I do." And uh, Platini didn't want to fight with the player, so he said, "Okay, okay." Let's do in your way. We do, <laughs> and actually, uh, we realized afterwards that uh, he decided before the European Championship that he will leave the national team after the competition. And, you know, after the European Championship, when he was in the airport in Sweden, in Sweden, he told the, the journalist, uh, uh, "You know, I'm leaving because I'm going to take part of the organization of the World Cup '98." Uh, which was obviously in France, and he made that decision before. So maybe we could think that during the competition, during this European Championship, he was not totally focused. Uh, he was thinking about uh, the next step of his career. Yeah, it certainly sounds like um, the the reasons France didn't perform are starting to unravel a bit. You know, you're talking about a manager that's out of focus, a couple of players that are off form, um, and the mentality that. You know, they thought they were they'd won the group before the game of Zambia even began. Um, so in the opening game, and um, we'll get to the games now. So the opening game um, against the host nation Sweden um, in Stockholm, he went behind in the first half there, Jan Eriksson header, and then John Pierre Papin scored a very good equaliser. Um, I mean, you said he was off, um, he was uh, injured beforehand, Bill. That's what you could do when he was not fully fit. You know, imagine what you could do when he was fully fit. But was it a good? Was it viewed as a good point, Pierre, given the fact that? You were behind in the game and not playing particularly well. Yeah, at this very time, uh, as a French fan, I began to have doubts, you know, <laughs> because I, I was totally sure that uh, we were about to win and it didn't happen. And at this time, uh, I remember the article about Jean-Pierre Papin said that, I don't know if it, we can say it in English, but he says that he played with only one foot because he was one foot injured and he has only one foot valid, only one leg valid. He's playing with only one leg, sorry. And, uh, but it was the right leg that was working well. So he scored a wonderful goal with on the pass of uh, a guy called Christian Perez, which uh, typically shows uh, that it was a, a winger uh, who played for Paris who was good, but he didn't have what we call the international level. It was it was good, but not extraordinary. And uh, actually, um, the problem of this team was the fact that if you, uh, I mean, they were Papa and Cantona, but outside outside of these two players, they were a real lack of technical players. So there was this guy, for example, Perez, but he, he, he was barely in the starting team. And he was a bit inconsistent. So we, we began to realize with this game that uh, there were problems in this team. <laughs> I, th- I think there was bigger problems in the next game against England. I mean, to be honest, um, from what there's not much to write home about um, from this game. Uh, the only thing I remember was a Stuart Pierce free kick that hit the bar. And yeah. there was an incident between Bowley and um, Pierce where Bowley knocked um, Pierce out um, <laughs> in, the, in the penalty area, which was um, pretty peculiar. But um, there was not much going on in this game. And when you when you look back at it, I don't know what your thoughts were at the time watching it, Pierre, but this was a game between two sides pretty much... Um, almost desperate levels when you had an England side under Graham Taylor, God rest his soul, that really were struggling um, and in serious transition, really missing Paul Gascoigne. And a France team, as you're saying, that just wasn't clicking despite all the pre-tournament hype that they were one of the favourites to win it. 
Yeah, it was a nightmare. You know, I'm obsessed with the French national team. As a football fan, I, I watch all the game uh, of France in competition since 92. And I think this is a, one of the worst game I ever seen of France in competition. It was awful. And um, at this very time, you know, uh, they got this feeling that uh, the two teams wanted a draw, actually, you know, because there was, at this time, they were still... Um, confident to be qualified and they say that uh, after this game England just had to beat Sweden and after this game uh, <laughs> France had just had to beat Denmark but actually uh, <laughs> none of these two teams will do it So, but the, you know in the European Championship 2012 uh, England and uh, France play uh, against and it was 1-1 And it was a bit like that in the way that uh, when two huge teams um, play against each other in this, in this part of the competition, sometimes they agree, agree on a draw, thinking, okay, <laughs> we don't take any risk. And that's funny because before the European Championship, you know, France was seen as a quite good team, actually. And during the European Championship, they were Italian uh, journalists who said during the press conference to Platini in Italian, Michele, Michele. <laughs> They said, Michel, what happened to your team? You, you were a wonderful player. How, how can you drive such an awful team? And at this very time, Platini, he couldn't say, answer anything. So he said a joke in Italian. But uh, we realized that uh, Platini was not happy with the way the team was playing, but he, He seems to say that he didn't have the player, the technical player, to to play otherwise. Yeah, I mean that that draw probably did come back to Fran um, bite France a little bit in some respects and England because um, obviously England lost two one to Sweden, but France are in the position coming up against Denmark, who were bottom the the group with one point. France probably knew that a point would be good enough, providing that England didn't match or better the result. Um, And obviously, it's 1-1 going into the last few minutes. Papan scoring again. And then Denmark scored a late goal to Elstrup. And the rest is history from a Danish point of view. But for France, it's national disaster. Yeah, definitely. I remember I was crying in front of my television. You know, it's my first... Uh, actually, it's my second drama as football fan. The first drama was when Marseille lost uh, in the final of a European Championship in 91. But uh, I was so despaired because... I was so, so sure that we were about to beat Denmark. It was impossible to, to lose against such a team. And uh, the, the only good thing on this game was the goal that scored Papin is wonderful. You know, there, there is just before the, the shoot of Papin, there is a, a back hill, we say that, uh, of Durand. And the, if you saw the game, uh, I said to the people who will uh, listen to us, watch this, uh, this goal is wonderful. But uh, the rest of the game was awful. And the, the Danish team was very good at pressing. You know, In the end of the day, they wanted more. You know, They, they want more than French to win the, the game. And they press a lot. And the, the French didn't expect that. And uh, totally, uh, Denmark uh, deserved to win. Yeah, I think the word hunger, um, you know, does certainly come into it, you know, because you had a Danish side who knew they had to win or they were out. And you had a French team, again, who, as we've discussed, probably pre-underestimated um, the opposition at the start of the game. And mm. 
knowing that they didn't have to win, essentially, but just avoid defeat, it created a different mentality. And at the end of the day, the team yeah. that wanted it more got the win. And um, obviously, they went on to create one of the greatest um, European Championship stories ever. Yeah, but let's imagine it's ridiculous to to base a strategy to be qualified with three draws, you know? <laughs> what is the ambition with that? So, uh, yeah, we didn't deserve to be qualified at all with if our only aim was to to, to do three, <laughs> three draws to be qualified. It's awful. Yeah, it worked for Portugal in 2016, but they were lucky in that time, but that's another story for them. <laughs> um, but, you know, the problems for France didn't even end in Sweden, you know, Platini obviously left, um, but the problems continued and you missed out on USA 94, which then meant that France had failed to qualify for three tournaments out of four. You know, that's something that you just couldn't imagine nowadays. You know, France, you would just mm-hmm. expect as soon as the qualifying draw is made, right, wins the finals, they'll be there anyway. But in those days, it, it really was some transition and then obviously later on it got good, but in the early 90s, it just wasn't a great period for the French national team. Yeah, it was awful. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the way we've been, uh, you know, uh, kicked out the, of the World Cup 94. It's it's awful because we lost against Bulgaria at the last second of the last game. You know, it's, it's uh, and the guy who scored, he called Kostadinov. Kostadinov is a synonym of a nightmare in France. You know, it's a, it's almost an insult. You know, Emil Kostadinov. He scored a goal at uh, the 19th minute of the last game, and we lost it in uh, Bulgaria. But at this time, we didn't realize that we were a group with Sweden of Bulgaria, and they finished three and four of the World Cup. So afterwards, we say that we finished fifth of the World Cup because <laughs> we were in the group of qualification behind these two teams. But what is very, very interesting is the fact that in, in this ridiculous defeat in European Championship 92 and Bulgaria 93, you have uh, what we call the, the seeds of the victory that will come afterwards because you have Deschamps. Deschamps, he played the European Championship. Deschamps, he played against Bulgaria 93, and as a player, he saw everything. He saw exactly what went wrong. And he advised uh, Jacquet, and Jacquet was there because uh, Aimé Jacquet who was uh, the, the coach of the national team that will be world champion in 98. He was uh, actually uh, part of the, the squad uh, of in 93 as well. So what I mean, the, the mistake we did in 92-93 we didn't do it afterward. And those mistakes were the national team is not an addition of the best player of the country. Yeah, it's exactly like that. You know, you have to find, and this is one of the obsessions of Deschamps as a coach, you have to, to find uh, in a national team a kind of, um, um, how can I put it? It's a kind of um, a balance, you know, a human balance between individual, you know, which means you don't take the best player, you, you take the players that live together the best, you know, which means that for the uh, World Cup 98, Jacquet didn't take uh, Ginola and uh, Cantona, which were maybe the two best players, French players behind Zidane at this time, 
but maybe it was too hard for them to be integrated in the squad. And uh, if they didn't play in the starting team, they, they would have been so disappointed. It would, it would be a nightmare, you know, to manage. So all the mistakes we did at this very time, it helped France to get better afterwards. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and obviously they had a golden period in the um the late nineties and three of that squad from Euro ninety two. Um Deschamps, mm. as we mentioned. Um was there, that's it, Emmanuel Petit, a very young Emmanuel Petit, um, mm. and Lauren Blanc, who was actually in the team yeah. of the tournament for Euro ninety two, all then played a prominent role in um mm. France's double World Cup and European Championship winning squad. But um to round off Pierre and um, thanks very much for your time and um for Given your recollections, obviously, year '92 not a great period. Um, just just summarise. Um, you know, from your point as a young eleven-year-old, how disappointed you were after such hype um, around this French team. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nightmare uh, as a football fan. You know, it's it, I was crying. I remember clearly. I was crying because uh, you know when when you are eleven, there is nothing more important than football if you are a football fan, and there is nothing more important that. Uh, uh, great competition of the summer with your team is he is qualified and you know very well it in Scotland because uh, uh, you know I was uh, in England and in Scotland during the European Championship and I saw the passion you have there is <laughs> when you love football there is nothing higher and when and I mean if you if your team is um, kicked off to the competition but she has fought uh, well, you know, she, 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 sh she showed great behavior. I don't know, like Scotland did in, uh, I don't know, in 98, you know, uh, okay, she were, they were beaten by Brazil, but they play well against Brazil. So, okay, okay. But if you have a wonderful team and you're supposed to win and you, you lost against Denmark, it's, 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 it's awful. So it was very hard to accept. And, but in the end of the day, as well, as a football fan, it was a wonderful story, the, the Danish victory. You know, I was obsessed with this guy, uh, Laudrup, Brian Laudrup. He's, he's one of my three favorite players all time. One really? Of, Brian you know, Laudrup? Yeah, yeah, Brian Laudrup, yeah. He, he, was, he was so elegant, wonderfully elegant, I think. For example, the goal he scored against uh, Brazil in the World Cup 1998, you know, uh, Roberto Carlos made a mistake and then he, he, he made a wonderful shot and then he, he made the celebration. He was, you know, in the, in the pitch, like, uh, like having a rest in the pitch. That's so, I mean, that's so elegant, so bright. And uh, so in the end of the day, okay, we discovered wonderful player. We discovered uh, Smeichel, we discovered Laudrup. So, okay. They deserve to win it. It was a wonderful story. So, no, it was hard to accept on the time, but in the end of the day, they deserve to win. So, good story in the end. Yeah, definitely. And um, obviously, Brian Lodrup had a great career in Scotland with Rangers and is very much loved by <laughs> even fans who don't support Rangers. Um, no, admitted what a great player he was. So, yeah, that's a good way to end it. Well, listen, thank you very much, Pierre, and um, all the best. Thank you for the invitation. When you go Your legs come
this Euro 92 throwback series is sponsored by Supernova Terraceware, an independent Scottish terrace and leisureware company. They sell a great range of products including t-shirts, hoodies, hats, scarves and more. Also, they have a great range of new products coming soon including jackets. As a special for this series, they're offering listeners 10% off using the code EURO92 in capitals. So please visit supernovaterrasware.com to take advantage of this great offer. We'd like to thank Supernova Terrasware for the continued support of Scottish Football Forum's podcast. In this part of the Euro 92 throwback series, we look at the mixed performances of the CIS, formerly known as Soviet Union. And I'm joined by Russian journalist Artur Petrosian. Artur, thank you for coming along. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, John. All good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. No, thanks again say, for um, agreeing to come on as we look back at 30 years since um, Euro 92 in Sweden. Um, obviously, we'll come on to the fact that our respective nations took um, came up against each other but in terms of um, the CIS it's quite an interesting journey um, because they started off as the Soviet Union in the qualifying rounds didn't have a good World Cup but then they came through a qualifying group with uh, you know, third place in Italian 90 Italy um, so how how big um, an achievement was it to qualify from a group like that after what had been a pretty poor World Cup even though as we say Russia, um, Soviet Union did reach the final in 88? Um, well, at that time, an average level of uh, national was far, far lower than it is now. So it wasn't really an issue most of the times for the Soviet team to qualify for major tournaments. Uh, the Soviet team always was considered as uh, one of the top teams in Europe. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, most qualifying tournaments uh, were considered as something like friendly games and preparation for major tournaments. But this time we had Italy in the group. They finished third uh, in 1990 World Cup. But still, uh, we drew two games and uh, finished top of the group. But it wasn't really like a huge success. At that time... For Russia, I mean, for the Soviet team to beat Italy wasn't really something special. Um, like in uh, 88, if you remember, the Soviet team beat Italy in the semi-final on the road to the final. So, not big deal, to be honest, at that time. Oh, fair enough. And, um, I mean, you drew three games in the tournament, but um, in the qualifiers, both um, times with Italy, as you say, and um, in a home game against Hungary, which was the only game that um, USSR conceded any goals. Uh, they only conceded two goals in eight games. I mean, that was that's pretty good going. You know, that shows that they had a good defence at that point. Uh, yeah, Anatoly Bishavez, who was the head coach at the time, was always a uh one of the most pragmatic coaches uh, in the USSR. So, and plus, we had uh, half of the new team at the time. Lots of uh, players uh, retired after the World Cup. Lots of uh, those who uh, the team always counted on, like Dasaev, Divyanenko, Hidyatulin, yeah, Pratasov, those guys. So, uh, Bushavis could not risk much, and uh, most of the games were 
not too exciting to watch, but he got the results, which was the most important thing at the time. Exactly, and it, you, you see, you qualified by a couple of points um, because uh, you beat Cyprus away from the final night of qualifying. Italy drew with Norway in the same night, which sealed it. Um, and this was just before the landscape of Europe and indeed um, Russia um, began to um, to change um, because the Soviet Union then broke up um, on the thirty first of December, um, nineteen ninety one. Um, you know, just I know this is directing away from football a little bit. What was that period like, you know, when there was, um, the, you know, when the Soviets broke up into like Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, etc.? Yeah, you know, John, actually, there was a danger of uh, missing out on the Euros because uh, uh, they could be eliminated without even taking part in it, without even starting. Because technically, it was the Soviet Union who qualified for the tournament and it, uh, it was no longer. Uh, the same country, the same team. So, thanks to Vyacheslav Klaskov, uh, who uh, was always like, a respectable figure in uh, European and world football, former president of the uh, football union here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, he managed to make sure the CIS team was allowed to take part. Yeah, that that was um, that was quite fortunate because I think um, that that came the, the Commonwealth of Independent States, um, as it's known, was was formed on the eleventh of January, um, specifically. Well, not just for Euro ninety two, but I think there was um, I, I, I think there was a couple of other sporting events that year that um, that allowed this um, to happen. And within, yeah, within there this, were, yeah, there were, uh-huh. yeah, sorry, uh, there were a couple of uh, friendly tournaments in the USA and. That's why Bushavets had the chance to build a new team to ex- to have some experiments. Um, yeah, but that was the only way to try try it before the the Euros. Yeah, and within your squad, it was still top heavy, really, with um, Russians. There was thirteen Russian nationals in the in the squad, five from the Ukraine, including the skipper Alexei Mikhailchenko, who's obviously well known in. In these in these parts when we spell at Rangers, um, as is all the kidnets kidnets of Andrew Kinchelskis, um, there was a Georgian and a Belarusian as well. But um as far as um you were concerned at that point, um when you looked at the squad, did it really matter um whether it was um X-Men or Russians, X-Men or Ukrainians, as long as you had a squad of twenty that was capable of doing well in the competition? Well, at that time, uh, as far as I remember, uh, a lot of uh, Fans of uh, Russian teams like Spartak, Dinamo Moscow didn't really like that uh, there were too many Ukrainians uh, selected for the for the team because the previous head coach Lobanovsky and um, Bushavets, who who is also Ukrainian, obviously um, wanted the team to consist mostly of the Dinamo Kiev players, but at the same time there were a lot of Russian players who uh, deserve to be called called up, who maybe played um, for Spartak, who was totally playing a different style, mm-hmm. uh, attractive, attractive attacking football with uh, similar players. But uh, most 
mostly yeah uh, those who who were selected were from ukraine but actually it's a bit uh, unusual nowadays because the majority of that team consisted of players who were playing abroad now we just have a few yeah it's um it's interesting how um, the the dynamics change um over the years um in terms of getting into the finals obviously um we both know it was a group of death, essentially, because, um, well, the way we look at it from Scotland, it was our first um, Euros. We couldn't have been given a more daunting scenario. It was the European champions, the world champions, and the Euro 88 runners-up. From a CIS perspective, what was the expectations going into that final? Yes, you were up against them, as we mentioned, the world's and European champions, but that shouldn't have been phasing um, a team of um, their calibre at that point. Uh, well, you know, at that time, Soviet or Russian fans still uh, had pretty high expectation, like always. Because I don't know for what reason, but uh, uh, most fans still think that we are supposed to do well when playing football against foreign teams. I don't know where this feeling came from, maybe from the power of the Soviet Union political power or something <laughs> and uh, yeah despite getting into the group of death uh, the progress from it was expected but there were some tensions actually because um, uh, the head coach made sure the players he selected uh, were getting paid before the tournament at least half of the prize money they were promised it was, as far as I remember, it was 20,000 francs, and that was big money each. So after the tournament, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, critics remembered that moment and criticized Bishavets for doing that because uh, somehow it could influence the motivation of the players because not many of them were rich at the time. So getting pretty big money was could kind of relax them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, that um, they were given some money before the tournament and then they were going to be promised more depending on how they progressed in the tournament. Was was that um, the coach's way of trying to motivate the players? Because if the players hadn't had payment, um, they might not have been anywhere near as focused because we've heard this sort of story with other countries before where they've went in almost half-hearted and ready to walk out in tournaments because they haven't had payment. Although, from a Scotsman, from a national perspective, it shouldn't really matter about the money. It should be the honour of representing your country. Yeah, exactly. I think the same way. I don't think uh, players should should uh, be paid at all for playing for the national team because it's a matter of Agreed. pride. Yeah, but at that time, uh, Soviet players were not that rich and... Uh, I think, well, the, the biggest reason why Bushavez did that because he, all, he all also uh, was part of the payment. <laughs> so he wanted to the whole team to get paid before the tournament. Because uh, actually two years before that, uh, after the World Cup, they didn't get uh, the money they, they were promised. So they were paid, but not the, the whole sum. Yeah, well, um, 
whether it was enough to help motivate him um, is another matter, but they put in a good performance in the opening game against Germany in North Shopping, um, took the lead through Dobrovolsky penalty, which he'd won because Stefan Reuter clotted into him, and it looked as though they were going to hold out, and then Thomas Hessler um, scores a, a peach of a free kick in the last um, minute. Um, I mean, was it viewed as a good point or a big disappointment that a point slipped away? Because remember, it was two points for winning in those days. Yeah, well, it's a disa- it was a disappointment because uh, our team didn't look really much worse than the Germans. So uh, after going ahead, everyone expected the three points, but for some uh, unnecessary challenge. And uh, with Germany having a player like Thomas Hessler, it was stupid to concede that foul and concede the goal. So yeah, it was a disappointment. Yeah, it would have been a huge disappointment. Now, that may have been seen as um, one point dropped, whereas the game against the Netherlands and Gothenburg might have been um, seen as a, a point gained when you consider that Dimitri Karin was called into action a few times. I remember one particular save from Van Basten in the top corner. Um, and it's fair to say that CIS did get away with one as well because Marco Van Basten is clearly on site, but the linesman's fight for offside. Um, otherwise, that would have been a defeat that night. But a good point considering yeah. all that. Yeah, exactly. We were lucky to get a point from that game. The Netherlands were over us and uh, they certainly deserved to win. They scored a good goal, which was called off. And actually, as far as I remember, the Russian, the Soviet commentator at the time didn't really pronounce that it was a clear call. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he kept it quiet and thought, yeah, it, it was a good, something like it was a good decision. So, And uh, actually, I think that game, uh, that great game by Dmitry Harin was uh, when Chelsea paid, paid attention to him and some months month later, he was signed for them. Yeah, he, he was certainly um, looking at problems in goalkeeper at that time, as you say, Chelsea signed him. Um, <coughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, he had a reasonably good spell at Chelsea and then, of course, um, went to Celtic as well. So another player that's known in, mm. in Scottish football. Um, is, um, but with but two points... Actually, actually done. yes, sorry, sorry to be interrupting you. Uh, actually, that game is still remembered when... Uh, when uh, Viktor Anopka, who is now uh, assistant manager of the Russian national team, he had a great game and he like had uh, root hullet in his pocket for all of the game. And that game actually is still remembered as uh, an example of the perfect game by a central defender. And actually, Hullet played uh, on the wing that game and Anopka had to also always like follow him wherever he goes, wherever he went. Yeah, Hill, it was um, almost at his peak at that point. I mean, they had, um, you know, the Melanchio of, um, you know, Hill, Van Basten and Rijkaard. And, um, you know, we coped reasonably well until the three of them combined to set up Dennis Bergkamp. Um, but Victor Nopko, you mentioned him. I mean, he turned into a really classy defender um, for a few years, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's still considered as one of the best defenders in, in history of our. Uh, well, he's from Ukraine, but he's considered as a Russian player. Mm-hmm. Did he not still play for us after this tournament, though? Yeah, yeah, he was the yeah, captain of Spartak so. Moscow. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and later it was a actual big story when he uh, signed for CSK to be an assistant manager there. 
and he even was uh, made to kiss their scarf on the presentation. So yeah, that was a not good memory for Spartak fans because he was the captain of Spartak and then had to kiss uh, the badge of the biggest rivals of Spartak. That's, that's pretty much the Russian equivalent of going from Celtic to Rangers or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, 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 something like that. <laughs> could just imagine um, the reaction that would have gotten in. So withdrawals against Germany and Holland, you know, the World and European champions, um, you know, coming up against the Scotland side who were already at the tournament. Now, I've been doing a bit um, from the Scotland point of view, so I've been doing a good bit of research. And the vibe that I get from some of the previous players that um, that I interviewed, the likes of Richard Goff and Stuart McCall and, um, and so on, they got the impression that Russia were very, sorry, CIS were very cocky going yeah. into that game and Mikhail Ochenko was popping, doing the popping noise for the champagne and all the rest of it. Um, did you get that vibe that Scotland were being underestimated in this game? Exactly. Yeah, it, it was the reason for the eventual results. Uh, nobody really had any doubt that uh, we we would win that game. And um, the, the story is uh, Alek Kuznetsov, who was also a Glasgow Rangers player mm-hmm. at the time, uh, he had the chat with some Scotland players. And then he came up to, the, our, to our place and said that I could feel the hangover. So they had like had a night, maybe some Scottish player talking that they had a night in the pub or something, and he could smell there. <laughs> and he told everyone about that, and uh, so it obviously meant that they were not at full strength, and it would be a walk in the park for for our team. So yeah, that that was the crucial moment. They well, plus they were actually quite unlucky, but. I think they had the feeling that whenever they um, they are up the gear, they will score, and they never, even during the game, they had no no doubt that they will eventually win that game. But but no luck, and the 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 feeling of uh, uh, superiority uh, did a bit bad part for the team. I think to be fair as well, Arthur, um, the first two goals that we got, now we didn't get any luck at all in the game against Germany, really. Um, we created a number of chances and couldn't put the ball in the net. Uh, similar story with Holland, we had a few um, chances and couldn't put the ball in the net. So the luck that we didn't get in those two games came about in the first 16 minutes because we scored after seven when the next day if it hits the post and hits Karin's head and goes in and then the second one's a wicked deflection from a Brian McClare shot. So mm-hmm. yes, you underestimated, but we got a little bit lucky with those first two goals as well. But I think, to be fair, um, would it be fair to say that Scotland spooked the CIS by coming out with such aggression that they weren't expecting? Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Scotland had nothing to play for besides their pride. And we didn't really expect that. <laughs> they thought they'll just, you know, spend 90 minutes and go back to Pops before, before flying home. Yeah, but... Yeah, football never, uh, never forgives this 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 kind of a mood. I think what also sums up the the match was when um, Pat Nevin um, he actually revealed later um, that he had a broken, pretty much a, a broken fibula. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, 
that was why he decided to take um, Kuznets off a run because there was no one in space for him to pass the ball so because he couldn't kick the ball that far. So he turns Kuznets off inside out. Kuznets off gives up and then wins a penalty to just seal the deal. But it was a, from obviously from a Scotland perspective, it was a great way for us to go at the tournament, um, you know, ending a high. But from a CIS perspective, with the semi-finals on their grasp, that all they had to do basically was win that game because Germany get hammered the same night by the Dutch. And you would have been through, yeah, but um, just a combination of um, underestimating Scotland and um, not performing yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was another disappointment for our team. But after all, after all, uh, it seems like we deserved not to go through. Uh, I remember the headline the next day uh, in Sport Express, uh, which is uh, the biggest sports outlet. In, uh, in Russia, no flag, no anthem, no luck. <laughs> it, it actually we, we had no anthem played before the matches. Mm. We had some bad bad on it. Was odds, it was odds to joy that was played yeah, for the yeah, Russian yeah. Uh, the CIS national anthem. I keep saying Russia, but it's obviously um, CIS. Yes, same here, same here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, to be fair, as we rhymed off, um, there was 13 Russians and your 20-man squad, so yeah, it's easy to, um, to set it up. So, yeah, that was um, um, so that was um, just part of the media reaction, you know, no anthem, no luck, um, it, no flag. But, you know, was, it a fa- um, was the overall reaction one of anger, disappointment, etc., the fact that CIS were coming yeah. home early? Yeah, altogether, actually, it was a tournament to forget. Uh, it started pretty well with a, a solid game against Germany, but after that, nothing went right. Poor game against the Netherlands, uh, and uh, even worse one <laughs> against Scotland. And actually, soon after, the head coach was sacked, and uh, yeah, he he had he didn't have a good press, and up to this moment, he sometimes has remembered those. Uh, Tensions that he was the reason of. Uh, he didn't have good relations with the president. He wanted too much, and he, he didn't deliver. So, yeah, <laughs> didn't end too well yeah. for anyone. It doesn't sound like they had a good enough motivation to go and perform in the tournament. To be fair, uh, sorry. It didn't sound like they had a good enough motivation to, you know, really give more than what they got in that tournament from what you're telling me, with the money factor. Yeah, yeah, the money factor meant too much for for the the coach and for some players and it's never good for football players. <laughs> no, definitely not. And um, obviously, um, after that tournament... Um, it was uh, if it was different nations, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, um, Estonia, etc. Um, so, how, you know, from your perspective, over those thirty years, um, how have things evolved in that post-Soviet split, and um, from a, from your point of view, a forgettable tournament? I think uh, the decline started from the end of the Soviet Union. The overall level of uh, football in every country declined in Russia and Ukraine, and especially in the Southern Republics. Yeah, Russia had some good moments in 1996. I think they had a team capable of uh, doing well. 
uh, with coached by uh, Spatsak Moscow head coach Alek Romansev. Ukraine had a really good team with Lobanovsky in the end of the 90s with Shevchenko Rebrov and beating Barcelona 4-0 at Camp Nou 3-0 in, in Kiev. Yeah, but overall it was a decline and up to this moment we still feel that uh, we lost a lot. And, uh, well, uh, Russian clubs don't do any more well in Europe. The same can, can be said uh, about the Ukrainian clubs. And, well, the national teams are no longer the, uh, a really big power in Europe. Yeah, a lot's obviously changed in the last 30 years and there's certain clubs, uh, certain nations and certain clubs that have managed to get richer and a lot of other countries have been left behind in that regard in a club level point of view. But from an international point of view, do you think then that it was better when you were all together as the Soviet Union rather than being separated as Russia, Ukraine, etc.? Uh, you mean uh, football? football in a football so... terms, yeah. In a football term, yeah. I mean... Yeah, we'll sure. leave for politics yeah, aside because that's touchy right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it was one of the strongest leagues in the world, the Soviet League, with so many good teams. Some Every every team had something special, like really pragmatic, dynamic Kiev, really romantic, Spartak, Moscow, good technical sites in Georgia and Armenia. So every every countries had something special and that's what made the whole tournament really unique and well the the whole feeling of the you know the whole feeling of the togetherness that uh, we had in the Soviet Union is something that a lot of people uh, have been missing for the past 20-30 years now, that's an interesting insight as to you know what things have been like and how they've evolved since. But um, but no, listen, thank you very much for your time, Martha, for um, going over um, your your United back that thirty years ago. I know it was a painful tournament for you guys, but it was um, good to get the insight as to why it didn't perform well. Yeah, but it's still good to remember <laughs> all, all good times. Yeah, thanks, yeah, well. John, for having me. Thanks, Arthur.